<laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs> yeah, happy to be here. As he said, I'm Adrian Lesperance. I know many of you, but many of you, many of you I do not know. Um, yet my wife and I, Amy, have been here uh, for about three or four years. Um, we came, we found Christ Central because, you know, I kind of had found some community at Duke, but my wife immediately found people who loved her very well, women here, and then uh, as much as I loved Duke Divinity School, I also found a uh, loving community here that was a, a little bit different, a little bit exceptional than, than at, at Duke. So anyway, I am very happy to be here. So let's, uh, if you would, please, please stand as we read the scripture together. It comes from 1 John, 4th chapter, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has been manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You may be seated. We thank God that he has revealed himself through his word to his people. Beloved, today John presents us with the challenge of love. We get to look, at the round, look around at the people in this room and evaluate how well we are loving each other. Why do we have to look around at the people in this room? Well, because John's admission, admonition, let us love one another, is to the church, to his people that he's leading 2,000 years ago. You see, the backstory behind 1 John is that there is a group from his church that has gone out and are preaching another gospel. We can call them false teachers. It's kind of like this, the first three rows, you folks right here, I'm sorry, you are the people who have gone out and you are believing something different than what Christ Central and the church and the world today believes and you're trying to influence the people in here and you're trying to influence the people out there and it's a problem. So John is writing this to say, people, my people, reject, ignore those who have come and I'm trying to disrupt you, trying to make you believe something wrong. So what are these things? So first of all, these false teachers, they believe that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that he didn't come in a body like you or I have, right? Our bodies are too stinky, too smelly, too, they break down. There's no way that the God of the universe could inhabit a body like ours. No, they were not okay with that. Second thing, that they didn't believe that Jesus was from God. They didn't believe that he was from the God of the universe, the God of Israel, that he had to be from some other source, from other, have some power from somewhere else, but not, not from the God. And the last thing, they didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, that he would come and rescue all of Israel and all of the world at the same time. Now, we'll get back to Jesus' body later, but I wanted to tell you this just to, so that we can relate to the text a little better and know why he's writing this. So... How does, but how does John know that these people are preaching a lie? Well, it's very simple. It's because he was there, right? He saw Jesus eat and talk and sleep and use the outhouse or whatever it was called. He was there for all of that. He saw it all happen, death, life, 
resurrection. You can almost hear John saying to the people who have walked away, no, you don't understand. I saw him. I touched him. He did and said things that only come from God. Don't believe a lie. But for John, perhaps more important than right thinking is right living. You see, he's charging them with wrong thinking, but most importantly, his chief charge against these false prophets is they don't love each other as they should. They don't love each other as God loves his children. And John makes this charge as an indicator of one's knowledge of God and one's belonging to God. If you love, that means that you know God and you belong to God. So this is our challenge. Is our love exceptional? Is it exceptional? But this is a hard question to answer. And I must confess that when I doubt, when I really doubt God or my faith or Christianity, it's because of the lack of love that I see in myself, the lack of love I see in, in the church, in the church at times historically, when I'm, when I, when I hear the promises of God that he is transforming us to make this world right, to bring the marginalized up, to see people be, live the lives they're supposed to live, but at the same time see the lack, lackluster love that we so often have for each other, it brings me down. It makes it hard for me. But I'm encouraged by the people I work alongside at a Habitat for Humanity build. I'm encouraged by the people in my city group who I know I partner with to love the people in Durham who are so in desperate need of love. I'm encouraged by Christ Central and the work that it does in Durham. And we should be able to love in this way because God, this God, this alien love, he has taken it from his world and injected it into ours, right? A world so desperately in need of love. Well, let's re reflect for a moment while I take a drink. I can't quite preach like, you know, Chris and Daniel can't go the distance, you know, like they can. But so let's reflect. American culture, how do they define that? How do we define love? Well, we say that we love chocolate cake. But what we, do, we want to really do is eat chocolate cake, right? We want to consume chocolate. This is desire, not love. And, and our culture has a hard time distinguishing between desire and love. Even how we love each other. We may say we love a person, whether they're a friend, an acquaintance, neighbor, but when it comes down to it, our love may look more like we want to consume them, right? That we want to gain something from them. And, and how do we do this? Well, maybe we only spend time with people who have a high social status so that their social status elevates our social status. Or maybe we like to spend time with people who listen really well so they can learn all the things about us and how important we are, but we don't have to listen to them or learn anything about them, right? So what is a better definition of love? Oh, just a general definition. I, I think God's love can be defined something like this. Love is, is an unconditional commitment for the good of a person, cause, or thing, even at the expense of oneself. Let me see that again. God's love is an unconditional commitment for the good of a person, cause, or thing, even at the expense of oneself. So, do we love each other? How often do we love in such a way where we might lose something or where we are inconvenienced? Maybe it's that friend or boss that 
really irritates us and we don't want to spend time with them, but we continue to spend time with them. Or maybe it's adopting a teenage foster child and in two years they hit 18 and they are out the door and they never talk to you again. Or maybe it's not until five years or 10 years later, you, you, you give them a home and they leave you. Or maybe it's just giving your time to a nonprofit or a ministry each week, even though you don't want to spend your time in that way. Well, at the end of verse 8, if you, if you read it, we see that love comes from God because God is love. Not that love is God. Now, any, any act of affection that we like to call God, we have to be careful because that may not be divine, right? It may not be love. We shouldn't be confused. God's essence is love, and everything he does it out, is out of love. But not everything we like to call love may be from God. But verse 9 and 10 defines God's love for us. And despite what we may think, it's not keys to unlock the life secrets or foolproof principles to financial independence or even a, a prayer we can say to go to heaven, right? Thankfully, God's love is not an abstraction, just an idea or even a rule book that we can apply to our lives. God's love is something unpredictable, right? This is God we're talking about here. Uh, something uh, that we don't expect, something that we may not even want, may not even like. It catches us completely off guard. But God's love consists in the creator of the universe giving us his own unique son so the world can be right, operated by God's own love. In the same way, our love has to be an action, right? It cannot be nice words. It can't be nice thoughts. It has to be deep, meaningful deeds for the people around us. But unfortunately, God's love may not be a, a warm, fuzzy feeling inside, right? Or that we can go to heaven when we die. Verse 10 says that he sent his son so that we might live through him. And verse 11 says that God's love deals with our sins. Well, how does it deal with our sins? Well, it's that Jesus Christ, when he came to this world, he took on the shame, the suffering, the death of our world and then overcame those powers of the world so that he could launch God's long intended project of new creation. Now, Jesus can only receive the suffering, the shame, the death if he has a body. Remember what the false teachers were saying, right? Jesus didn't come in a body. But the, the matter of the fact is that Jesus having a body could come and experience those things, take those things in and then... Destroy them. If he didn't have a body, then God's love is minimized, right? It is not as powerful or as grand as, if, as it is that he has a body, right? So that means that the God of the universe has experienced soul-crippling shame, right? The kind that makes us hate ourselves, whether for a week or months or even years, We've all been there to some degree. We've done things that we wouldn't tell a soul. And so what do we do with these things? We take them, we lock them deep down inside of us, and we don't realize at the same time that we're locking our very selves inside that prison. But Christ has been in that place. Not that he has committed the same unspoken sins that we have, but he has sat alone in that room with the person, and he has ears to hear the shame crippled individual recount their shameful acts. I'm sure he did this many times when he was on earth. 
He sat with that person so they could cry on his shoulder. Jesus laid himself bare so they could give Jesus their unspeakables. And Jesus bared it all. Oh, how he bared it all. And he gave the person new life from the sin of their past and even the sin of their future. And this new creation way of life is what we see in verse 9. It says that we might live through him. Now, when we, when we hear this phrase, we shouldn't think once again about life after we die, going to heaven when this world's all over. We should think of living with Christ in the life of the age to come. Now, what is this age to come? Well, John was a Jew. And he believed that at the end of the world... God was going to erect all the Jews, the whole nation of Israel, and God would come to earth and reign in perfection with all the Jews. But then all of a sudden, Jesus resurrects right in the middle of history. And they declare, oh, the resurrection must come. What's going on? They believed that that resurrection age had come from the future and had sat down right on the present. And so we call this the already, already these things from the future, heaven, perfection, new heavens and new earth, have come, but not yet, not in its fullness because they are overlay, overlaid on our present age. The age that started when humanity turned its back on God, it's still with us, but this new age is stacked right on top of it. And you see these two ages in tension, right? But what does that mean? What does it mean that this thing has already started, but not completely well? I believe that it means that God helping us, we can have the kingdom of God spring up right before us. So the mural that someone paints on an on a exterior wall downtown in Durham on some business that was painted for the glory of God, I believe that that painting is created in the new heavens and the new earth. It will be there even more beautiful than it is today. Or the business that you all are, that you may be a part of, that you are a part of to see God's kingdom come. That in some way, shape, or form, that business and what you do will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Or just the hello, the kind hello to someone that you see that is down. That that, that act of kindness will be in the new heavens and the new earth. That what we do has eternal, lasting value. And I would offer you, this is how the New Testament writers see time and space. The time, that the space that we are used to has now been crashed upon by God's space, by God's time. And we are able to live with Christ today. But to live with Christ today is to live with one another. As we move to the final two verses of our passages, 11 and 12, we read that if we love one another, God abides in us and his, perfect, and his love is perfected in us. Uh, this, this is amazing, right? Perfect love. Think of that. Perfect love from God. But it's come to us in a way that we don't usually expect, I think. When we think of God's perfect love, maybe we think of an intimate, quiet time with God or singing to a hill song, song and being enraptured by that thing or maybe just taking a hike on the Appalachian Trail, right? That is perfect love. Well, John is in a little bit of a disagreement. He says that perfect love comes when you give of yourself to your brothers and sisters. Remember how we define love. Love is an unconditional commitment for the good of a person, cause, or thing, even at our own expense. So let me ask you, have you spent time with the other people in this room in the past week? Have you spent time in the past week with people who are 
intent on seeing God's kingdom come on earth. Right? We have to start here. If you're not seeing people, if you're not with other believers, then you're not experiencing God's love perfected. But if you have, if I encourage you once again to realize it may not feel like a warm, fuzzy feeling. Think of Paul. Right? He's writing to the Ephesians, his letter to the Ephesians. Where was he writing from? Jail. He was writing from jail. I don't know if he felt happy all over, but I think he probably had a sense of rightness about his life because he was in community with the Christians that may, be, may have been in jail with him, right, who Caesar was done with them, ready to throw them in jail, or, or because he had community with the people outside of jail. And he felt this, this rightness in him. So how are we doing? Are our lives ordered well enough so we can make time to have someone over to our house or to go out with someone else? Because love requires planning and it requires listening, listening to God, seeking God to discover whom we ought to love. And so we have to create the necessary time, uh, the emotional and physical energy and the spiritual maturity to actually love the person God wants us to love. Only then will we be truly able to live enmeshed and grafted lives with the people that are sitting in this room. Now, my final thought has to do with a conversation between God and Moses, and it touches on our last verse, okay? This is from Exodus 33. God and Moses are having a conversation. They've been traveling through the desert, and God has had enough. He tells Moses, I'm not going anymore. I'm not going with this obstinate people, this people who they don't listen they don't care. They've turned their back on me. But somehow Moses is able to convince him. I don't know how that quite works, but he convinces God to come along. But before they go, Moses has one question. He says, I want you to show me yourself. Show me who you are so that I know your ways so that when we're going through the desert, I can tell the people about your ways. But God responds in this way. He says, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. No person can see me and live. Now that's kind of a challenging verse. I mean, what is going on there? God is some far off, can't even see him, and maybe he's kind of destructive. But John says something very similar at the end of our passage in verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. The same thing. Now, we know that after Jesus came, that relationship changed a little bit, right? We saw God in a human form. But then he ascended into heaven. And then what? Is God now unseeable again and visible to humanity? Well, it seems like an odd phrase right in the middle of, right at the end of our passage. No one has ever seen God. What? I thought this passage was about love. Well, verse 12 goes on like this. It says, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I take this to mean that the Holy Spirit enables those in the church to love one another in such a way that God will appear for a watching world. He will appear in the love that we have for each other. The Spirit binds us together in, in the mysterious image of God so that the world is not left in the dark apart from God. If that is not motivation to love each other, then I do not know what is I encourage you, brothers, to, love, to let love dominate your homes, whether you live with a roommate, a spouse, a friend, 
no one. I challenge you to love the people in your house, right? When we work together at a Habitat for Humanity, Habitat for Humanity or CC Spalding, let your love be known, right? When we spend time with each other just out and about, let your love be known. Let our love arrest the people that come into our houses and into our spheres of influence. Let us not be like the false teachers whose wrong ideas led to lousy love. But let us create a community that is irresistible, that shows the world that the merciful king has come, and we, all, we are all given the opportunity to enter his kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbled to know that you let us participate in a kingdom that is here at least in part, God. Help us to love in such a way where you appear for a world that is so desperately in need to see their creator, their lovely creator who loves them so desperately much. Help us to learn to love even when it is challenging and when it is hard. We thank you for this church. We thank you for Durham. Help us to love it better. Pray this in your name. Amen.